You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steve Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. My guests today are going to be talking about Achlan Simpson, the largest early development initiative in the history of humanitarian response. I'm very glad to welcome David Miliband from the International Rescue Committee and Sherry Weston from Sesame Workshop. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Great to be with Thank you. Thank you so much. Sherry, if I may start with you, I'd love to learn a little bit about the genesis of this programming. I know you got a MacArthur grant, um, but tell me, how did the idea come about and what was the intent from the beginning? Well, you know, back when the uh, sort of the height of the Syrian crisis at Sesame Workshop, we realized there were so many children who had left everything behind, did not have access to education. And we have a long history of doing local Arabic programming in the Middle East with local adaptations of Sesame. But we thought if we could partner with someone, we could reach children directly. Um, if we could combine both our media and our proven educational content with direct services. So I actually reached out to David Miliband and we asked the IRC if they would will, be willing to pilot a program in Jordan. Um, and that's where we started. It was before anyone knew about MacArthur Foundation's audacious uh, 100 and change uh, competition. So soon after we started that pilot together with IRC using Sesame uh, educational materials and media with their incredible direct services on the ground, um, I reached back out to David and said, we're gonna apply for the MacArthur 100 and change. I think we should do it together. Um, it's to address one of the most pressing needs of our time, and this clearly is. Um, but I'll be honest, we never dreamed we'd be uh, 18 months later out of 1,900 applicants, the ones that were chosen. Um, but it, but really, that audacious philanthropy allowed us to create, as you said, the world's largest early childhood intervention in um, humanitarian response. And it's been an incredible opportunity and privilege. A quick follow-up to you before I go to David. Um, just a quick follow-up. I was wondering a little bit about the science behind your founding of this thing. What did you? Had, what can't give you confidence it would work? Well, first well, of all, great, oh, sorry, is that for David? Sorry. Sherry, I was asking you. I'm sorry. We oh, may have a little sound problem there, but then I'll come to you, David. Great. But there is a great deal of research and neuroscience today on a child's brain development. The most important times in a child's brain development are those first five years of life. We also know that if they are exposed to prolonged stress or conflict or trauma, it literally debilitates their brain development. And that's so um, pronounced in those early years. So if you think about a child being experiencing displacement or conflict, imagine the impact that has on their healthy brain development. So what we've done is really based on all of the science because if you reach children in those critical early years with what we call nurturing care, with more engagement with an adult, with opportunities for playful learning, it literally mitigates that negative impact and gives them a chance to build resilience and, and thrive. David, a question for you. Um, you started with this idea of reaching children and, and relieving toxic stress, as Sherry was saying. But this program, which was designed to go to Jordan, I think initially, as you said, has grown. Tell us about the impact. Tell us who's watching it now, what the reach is, and how that's happened. Well, the genesis of the program, from our point of view, was that as soon as the MacArthur 
competition was announced, we realized that it presented an opportunity to tackle one of the biggest challenges in the humanitarian sector, by which I mean not just the limited provision of educational opportunity, especially early childhood opportunity, but also it offered us a chance to break this conundrum that until this Alan Simsim program, programs were either very uh, detailed and bespoke, but only reached small numbers of people, or they were broad brush and reached a lot of people. What this program gave us the opportunity to do was to combine intensive support for kids in Syria, who are the victims of war, they've been displaced or they've been under bombing, kids in Jordan, uh, kids in Lebanon, uh, who've now been there, really some were born there uh, after 2011, others have lived there for 10 years of their uh, lives. Those are the three main areas, um, three main countries in which we've uh, delivered services, Syria, Jordan and Lebanon. We've also got a small program in Iraq, but it gave us a chance to set a new gold standard for what early childhood development could mean. Because until now, you, we've really suffered not just from a financial neglect for the youngest children, uh, but also a, a chronic failure of investment. Because as Sherry said at the beginning, we know from rich countries that if you invest in children early, it has outsized benefit. Well, actually, what we believe was that we could achieve the same for some kids in the most war-torn places. And as your graphic at the beginning showed, when you do combine in-person services, even if delivered remotely, tailored services, but also the wraparound of a fantastic media and TV series, you get this outsized influence, you know, fully a year's worth of pre-educational progress in the space of 11 weeks. That's pretty amazing. And we yeah. now need to make sure that we take this globally, not just confine it to the Middle East. Sherry, a follow-up for you, because Sesame Street has not been shy about taking on difficult issues, autism, grief, among others. But the refugee space is something of a leap, I think. What made you take that leap? Well, to your point, you know, we've had a long history over 50 years of addressing the most pressing needs affecting children. When we started this project, 65 million people were displaced, almost half of whom were children. And today that number is 110 million. So I think that uh, UNICEF came out or UNHCR with 43.3 million children displaced today. So how could we not? Because we know Sesame was created to, to prove that you could use media to reach children who didn't have access to quality early learning. And to David's point, when we're combining that, so you're not only having the opportunity to reach children at scale through mass media, but we're also creating multimedia so that you're, um, you have home visitors who have Sesame content. We have teachers who have Sesame content in the classrooms. That surround sound of both IRC's direct services and Sesame's proven educational content is has proven to be an incredible way to provide access to the learning they've lost, but also to create very specific content that's designed to help children cope with trauma. To David's point, it's this great irony. We know from science, the children the, the, of all refugees, those who are affected most are those who are in those critical early years because of the time in their brain development. They receive the least, and yet they have the most gain. So, David, talk to me a little bit about you. You understand the science very well. You've been working around the world. Sesame Street has its own approach, language. We see some familiar characters like Elmo, but Basma and Jad are maybe not as familiar to others. Talk to me about taking the science that you know so well and understand and translating it to the world of Sesame Street and how 
who the experts are who help you make that transition? We're big believers at the International Rescue Committee in client-centered programming. We're big believers in behavioral science. Uh, we're big uh, believers in starting from the ground up. And what we found with Sesame Workshop is, is partners who have equally strong commitments. And so you're right that we've taken characters designed for the Western world and introduced them to the Middle East, but we've also developed characters that are tuned to the Middle East. And in both cases, we were doing that with local staff, local International Rescue Committee staff, local Sesame Workshop staff. And the programming that was developed didn't duck the difficult issues, but it addressed them in a way that allowed children to access their own emotions, to access uh, their parents' emotions, which is an important part of this, their carers' emotions, and to speak in a way that was truly empathetic. You can only do that if you're real listeners. And what we pledged uh, six years ago to the MacArthur judges was that we would really listen, that we would learn as we went along. And my goodness, we've had to do that because, of course, in the middle of our programming, COVID struck. And so everything got turned upside down, not just in the Western world, but all over the world. And so we had to find new ways of reaching people when we couldn't use the traditional tent by tent uh, outreach to refugee families. So, Sherry, how is this programming? I mean, I think you're reaching something like 23 million children. How, are. how are you reaching them? How are you accessing them? Well, we're reaching 23 million children through both broadcast, satellite, but also YouTube, everything from WhatsApp to every device that a child is on today. And in the Middle East, they have tremendous access to media. But combining that with the IRC's incredible work, we've also reached a million five with these direct services. And to the point, you know, new characters like Basma and Jad, these are created so that children can see themselves and have storylines they can relate to. For instance, Jod had to leave his home. He left everything behind. He becomes best friend with his new neighbor, Basma, who welcomes him with open arms. So you can see how that would resonate with children throughout the Middle East, whether they've left their home or whether they're in a host community. But I think the other thing when you say, how are we, uh, how do we know we're succeeding? You know, out of this audacious $100 million grant that we have, thanks to MacArthur, we put $15 million into research with NYU Global Ties so that we could add to the body of evidence on what is most effective for children in conflict and crisis settings. There's a dearth of research out there. So we have um, completed two randomized control trials that we've just recently shared, which are incredible because they've showed us that we have tremendous outcomes that are significant in terms of helping children identify emotions, manage emotions, which is one of the key curricular goals. Secondly, to, to David's point, when COVID hit, you know, much of this we couldn't do in person. They couldn't do home visits or schools. So we created a remote pre-K and in 11 weeks with um, materials, digital materials, Sesame that were provided over WhatsApp to the parents with IRC trained staff who are orchestrating phone calls. In 11 weeks, we have literacy, numeracy, social emotional learning gains that are comparable to that of an entire year of in-person preschool. So it's, so it's quite powerful. So, David, Sherry has just raised a, a key issue that I wanted to raise with you, and that is about the dearth of science on, on refugee response, how we know what's working and what isn't, and the lack of work, quite honestly, that's gone on in the past about that. So you now have data, these randomized control trials about this particular program. 
Are you, is it a model in some ways for other refugee programs, not looking at early development, but other programs of all sorts for how to collect data and then move ahead with making responses more appropriate to the need? Well, there are two parts to that. First of all, there is a dearth of evidence, but I'm really proud that over the last 10 years, it's significantly being filled by my own organization. The IRC is 3% of the global humanitarian budget, but we do 30% of all the impact evaluations that take place. So if you ask me about violence against women and violence against kids, I can point you to a randomized control trial. If you ask me about giving money to farmers before a flood hits versus giving money after a flood hits, I can point you to a randomized control trial. So the first point to make is this public good of sound, independent, effective impact evaluation and research, that gap is being filled. Any of your viewers or listeners can go onto the IRC outcomes and evidence framework, which is open source online and see the best evidence of what works. The second thing though is good evidence is not much use if the government donors and the private philanthropists don't follow up and invest in what works because we are suffering a dearth not just of research but also investment to follow up good research uh, almost every program in the humanitarian sector isn't just underfunded it's got lower reach than it's than it should and so the fact that education you've quoted 40 percent, more than 40 percent of all refugees are kids less than three percent of the global humanitarian budget goes on education so it's not just about having more research, it's also about having a donor community, including a government donor community, but frankly, corporations and private philanthropists too, they need to follow the evidence once the evidence is produced. And we've got a big job, uh, Sherry and I, in overseeing this program. But if you like, we've got an, all, an even bigger job to make sure that all the good that comes from it is then followed up with opportunities for next generation of kids in the Middle East, because the Syria war is not over, but or the Syria conflict is not over. The, the, the consequences of the conflict are not over. Uh, we still have six million refugees, eight million internally displaced. But also we know that other parts of the world, Sudan most recently, are suffering from conflict and the kids there need the benefit of this investment uh, as well as kids elsewhere. I was on a call a year ago um, with teachers from Ukraine who had managed to hold some classrooms together because they had learned during COVID to hold virtual classrooms. And so in some senses, those lessons um, continued uh, in, in this awful displacement during the war. Sherry, are there other benefits that have come from COVID in some ways in helping people understand remote learning and other ways of keeping children in touch with their teachers and their communities? Well, I think there have been benefits. As I mentioned, the remote pre-K that we created seeing how that can work, we know there will be other times where we can't be there in person. So those learnings are invaluable. But more than just COVID, the entire program that David and I have had the privilege of pulling together and leading has is, is enormous impact in terms of children in the Middle East. But it's been done, as you point out, Francis, as a model. What can we learn from this that can be replicated elsewhere? And because of MacArthur, they were a tremendous catalyst in terms of raising awareness of this issue. The Lego Foundation stepped up soon after and funded both IRC and Sesame in extended work. We've gone to Rohingya crisis in Bangladesh, East Africa, Latin America, and now Ukraine. So when you think of us and our challenge to carry on the work we're doing with Ahan Simpson, it is, it is directly serving those children in the Middle East, but it is absolutely creating ripple effects and learnings that we're applying all over the world. Today in Ukraine, we are reaching 
children through broadcast with 125 episodes of content adapted for Ukrainian designed specifically to help children deal with challenging issues and fill the void, as you point out, of literacy, math, science. We are working directly with the Ministry of Education and Science um, so that th these materials are on their digital hubs and outlets. We're, I was just on a webinar last week with Ukrainian teachers who are using where we do trainings and they're using content. I mean, I love the anecdotes. One teacher said that the, the Sesame content in their classroom, that they now automatically go to it after air raids because they find it so comforting for children. So to be able to learn from this, to create and replicate this program and adapt um, to children wherever they may, may be who are suffering and affected by conflict is a huge opportunity for us to continue to make a difference. David, I want to come with you. I have a reader question that's come in that I'd like to post to you. It comes from Tanya in Massachusetts. And Tanya asks, is the IRC working in Ukraine on any programs for children in war zones? Kind of a follow-up to Sherry, but I would like to ask that specifically. The answer is yes. Um, we apply a, a very simple test to where we, where we work. Uh, and the test is, one, is there a crisis or a threat of crisis? So Ukraine, yes. Uh, is there poverty and vulnerability in parts of Ukraine? Yes. And are there other actors on the ground? We don't want to duplicate. And so IRC services are very close to the front line. I'm, I'm really proud that what, 36 hours after the Ukrainian forces went into Kharkiv, uh, IRC teams were on the ground. In terms of the exact focus, I'd say two things. First of all, we're working uh, very much on the economic support for families, especially those trapped in their own homes. Uh, that's generally older families rather than families with kids. Secondly, for the internally uh, displaced, we're working both on health and on education. Now, the education system has remained very strong in the same way the, the health system has re remained strong. So the health ministry can work uh, with an organization like Sesame Workshop and doesn't especially need us because they've got the teachers, et cetera, in, in place. It's rather different from the Middle East. The good news from the Middle East is that we can transition the Alan Simpson program into something that's embraced by Jordanian and Lebanese governments to give it long-term sustainability. But the short answer in David, the Middle East, sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say, I thought you'd finished. I'm sorry, but a follow-up because you raised this issue of not wanting to duplicate. And after um, disasters, we know there's often a problem of huge amounts of resources going in, but it being poorly organized, lots of people wanting to help. How do you manage that in a situation like Ukraine on one hand, and then you've got your fingers, you know, working in other areas of the world at the same time? It's a, a massive um, coordination problem, I would think. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially two categories. In, in a place like Ukraine, where the government infrastructure is strong, they are the coordinating body. Mm -hmm. In places where there is no effective government, then the UN or the uh, NGOs have to come together. And I've been very struck in my time in the humanitarian sector that while the work at global level isn't always what it needs to be, at local level, uh, there's very little of people tripping over each other with the NGOs appearing in the same place to do the same thing. What we call our cluster mechanism, which is about health, edu health education, uh, economic support, uh, et cetera, uh, each of them work pretty well to ensure that there isn't this uh, duplication. And I'm afraid the bigger problem is gaps in provision rather than duplication of provision. Oh, gosh, yeah. 
Sherry, you've raised a couple of times this, the, the NYU study that's so important for our understanding the evidence base, the impact of these programs. Um, I think you've seen results on language, numeracy, uh, socioeconomic, uh, sorry, response. Tell me a little bit more about that and any big surprises that came out of that for you and that may make you adjust programming going ahead. Well, I think, I mean, not really surprises. We've actually had a number of um, studies on watching Sesame Street around the world, local adaptations, where we've seen similar results that are equivalent to that of, of in-person pre-K. Um, but I think the the one that really was so um, sort of enlightening was to create an, a, a remote pre-K when we couldn't even be in schools or classrooms and to realize through technology like WhatsApp, if we were giving the parents and caregivers the tools they need and we're giving them the guidance and we have the training or the facilitators, that we really can have um, significant outcomes in those children's, both their literacy and numeracy. But again, one of the reasons the emotional ABCs, if you will, were the main curricular goal for this, um, for Athan Simpson, is because we always, as David mentioned, start with local educators, local experts, bringing in and building the talent so that this is truly locally produced and designed. And that came from our needs assessment, from our local advisors, how critical it was particularly for children who've experienced trauma, to be able to identify emotions, manage emotions, and that's a fundamental foundation before they can be able to learn and thrive. And so I think it's not that they were surprising, it's just that it's so rewarding to see you can do this. And when we combine educational media with the direct services an incredible organization like the IRC can provide, if we can replicate this, you know, listen, as David says, MacArthur ends now. It was incredible. We're so grateful. It allowed us to create something really groundbreaking um, that will help transform humanitarian response. But now we need to fund continuing this work. It's so critical for others to understand why the most important investment they can make is in young children affected by crisis. If we're not giving them the tools they need to thrive, to build resilience, to overcome, how can they possibly have the skills they need to rebuild their societies? Yeah. David, we've been talking a lot about technology in terms of delivering uh, aid, of access and things. But technology is transformative in some ways in understanding where people move to after disasters. I saw this after Paradise. You could track uh, where people were going, where people were moving. How transformative is technology and what, would we sh what should we be looking at for new technologies to help your jobs? Well, it's not been transformative in the humanitarian sector yet. There's not enough predictive mm -hmm. analytics. There's not enough pre-planning. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's not enough empowering of aid workers uh, with the best kind of technology. Um, and there's not the funding, frankly, to build up an infrastructure uh, for the NGOs to be properly uh, connected at the, in the best kind of way. Having said that, I think there are some real breakthroughs. I pick out a couple of areas. First of all, what's the first thing you need if you're on the run for your life? You need information about where's safe. I'm really pleased with a, a project called Signpost, which is an IRC-led project now in 15 countries. Uh, that's helped about uh, 60 million people over the last six years with information. So I think we can really make progress in the information space. Secondly, um, when it comes to service delivery, many of the places that we work have very low or very expensive connectivity. 
So offline as well as online use of technology becomes really important. Education, health, uh, care are two areas where we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking, look, if you just throw enough laptops at people, everything will be fine. You need the skilled people on the ground, which is what uh, Sherry has emphasized in, in her uh, contribution today, which I think is really important. But I think there is room for programmatic breakthroughs in health and in um, education. The real frontier, and I, I confess this is an area where we need real work of the same kind that we've had over the last six years with Alan Simpson, when it comes to child protection and women's protection, uh, we've got a real problem that our best programs are incredibly labor intensive. And that means that a very small proportion of the women in need or the kids in need get the help they need. And that's where I think we've got room for the kind of partnership that we've had over the education space, the early childhood development space. We need it in new areas of public policy too. Just to carry on with you, David, for one second, um, UN refugee, the refugee days just around the week, we have a new report out. What are you learning? What are the new goals? What do we need to be concerned about beyond what you've just told us? Yeah, so next Tuesday is World Refugee Day. It's, it's uh, prefaced by the new numbers that you've announced from the United Nations High Commission on Refugees. First of all, most refugees are in poor countries, not in rich countries. So we need the richer countries to fulfill their responsibilities, to take those who are needed, who, who need to come here, uh, for a new start, but also to support those countries like Uganda or um, uh, prime example, Bangladesh, another example that Sherry's mentioned that are supporting refugees. Secondly, the numbers of internally displaced fleeing from conflict is growing very fast, but it's going to be outstripped before we know it by those who are fleeing from climate. There's a footnote in the UN report that came out this week that says 33 million displacements are the result of the climate crisis. And that's not even counted in the 110 million figures that you've mentioned. Just to be absolutely clear, that 33 million may be 15 million people moving twice, 16 million people moving twice. Uh, they're clear that it's, it's the number of displacements. So they're not yet able to say the number of people affected. But you can tell that the climate crisis is a, is a conflict multiplier, but it's also a direct driver of people uh, movement. And then finally, there is this point that the management of asylum claims is being done well in some countries and badly in others. Uh, the Biden administration is investing in processing centers. It really needs to get its skates on so that you can process asylum claims fast, whether at the southern border or across Latin America, because delayed asylum claims isn't good for anyone. It's not good for the refugees and asylum seekers. And it's not good for the host countries. Sherry, a last question to you. I'm sorry we're running out of time, but you've taken on this huge topic now. What could be the next goal for Sesame Street? Well, as always, we're looking at what are the most pressing issues affecting children. And we've just recently launched a major initiative around emotional well-being because of the mental health crisis, not just here in the United States, but around the world. But it ties into what we're talking about today. There are so many things that young children are facing. And this work we're doing is something we weave in to our refugee response as well. Um, and as I said, what, what we tend to call Welcome Sesame is taking the learnings that started with this incredible program, Han Simpson, and being able to adapt to help children affected by conflict or crisis or core climate displacement, wherever they may be. And one of the most important things we've learned is regardless of geography, what children need and what caregivers need when facing this kind of um, crisis is the same. How we reach them, 
and in their different contexts is where we're learning different means, but but we know what they need and we need to invest in reaching young children affected by crisis. We know what they need. What a great message to, to end on. And thank you for your sense of optimism and commitment. David Miliband and Sherry Weston, thank you very much for joining us on Washington Post Live. Thank you for having us. Thank you, David. Thanks, Sherry. Thank great you. as always. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.